I really took a look at our senior leadership team and looked at each person and asked myself, am I willing to bet my life savings on that person? Because that is exactly what I'm doing. Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Kirk Cordill, ladies and gentlemen. Kirk thinks globally and acts locally, and you'll hear plenty of evidence of that in our conversation as Kirk opens the book on his incredible automotive career so far. Let me give you a bit of background to whet your appetite for the journey that Kirk's going to take us on. He grew up in the state of Indiana, the heartland of America, and attended Hillsdale College in Michigan, earning a bachelor's degree in finance with a minor in philosophy, including study at Oxford University's Keeble College. He went to work as a financial analyst and controller for Sarah Automotive Group, which runs a network of 42 dealerships represented in seven states. He worked there before returning to school to earn an MBA at the University of Notre Dame. Kirk then went to work for BMW and served as a senior executive for two decades, including 11 years abroad. Kirk worked in the late 1990s in Munich, Germany for the company's chief financial officer. He wrote the CFO's English speeches and other material. On trips to Britain, Kirk had the opportunity to tour Land Rover plants, something he calls beneficial now that he's an owner of and running a Land Rover dealership. It also gave him access to the BMW board at an early age, which gave him insights into the inner workings of the company. In 2008, at age 38, Kirk was given the opportunity to become managing director and CEO at BMW Group Financial Services in China. He spent five years in China, leaving Beijing in 2013 to lead BMW Group Financial Services US in Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. After a short stint in New Jersey, Kirk returned to Indiana as an owner with his old boss Joe Serra at BMW of Shearerville. He also married his wife Wendy that year. Kirk and his family live outside of Chicago in Oak Brook, Illinois. Kirk tells me cars are my passion. To be able to combine a passion with a profession is awesome. It is an absolute privilege to be able to share Kirk's story with you. It illustrates his passion and demonstrates the level of commitment that that passion has allowed him to bring again and again over the years. It's packed with insights from someone who's been operating at a very senior level across our industry and across the globe. I'm excited for you to hear this. Kirk's experiences are unique, but the lessons are transferable. I look forward to hearing what resonates with you. This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquila Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquili.co.uk.
Hello, Kirk, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today? Well, greetings, Andy. It's it's great to see you again, and, and thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast. I am coming to you from the great state of Indiana in the heartland of America, uh, just outside of Chicago. I'm at our BMW dealership, BMW of Cherubel, and we have a Jaguar Land Rover uh, dealership down the street as well. Marvellous. And thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. So you're in Indiana now, near Chicago. I love the way you guys say Jaguar, by the way. That is, <laughs> I just have to, have to acknowledge that there's something uh, very cool about that. Uh, you're in your dealership there, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about those businesses that you own. But where did it all start out for you? Where were you born? Well, I was born in the in Indiana, in the heartland of America, and uh, have four brothers. Uh, I was the youngest. I was the the accident. My mom was always hoping for a girl, and uh, you know that was just one of the disappointments I gave my parents along the way, Andy. So. Straight off the bat, you were disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but. Um, you know, had a really nice family life growing up. My dad was a uh, my dad was an old West Point graduate, so um, uh, as you might imagine, it wasn't a very liberal household that I grew up in. And uh, you know, I would say the biggest thing he instilled in all of us was a really strong work ethic. Um, and you know, he really believed you know you had to be playing sports and working, and that if you did that, you'd probably get in less trouble. And I think if you're raising five boys, that's that's probably true. So, yeah, that's fair. So, the West Point. I'm just familiar with a, a quote from West Point about choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. Very strong sense of right and wrong, instilled from a very early age. And in in fact, you know, I had a German boss during my career that at one time. Now, this is coming from a German boss said that. Um, I don't see much gray, that I'm very black and white. And coming from a German boss, I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> Saying something, isn't it? Yeah. So you were one of five boys then, did you say? Correct. Enough, wow. to, enough to field a basketball team. Mm, mm. And then your parents stopped at you, did they? they there were no more... Uh... After after that big disappointment, Andy, I think my mom said enough. I don't think I'm ever going to have a girl. We're done. So. Okay. And it sounds like because some of my guests are also not the first child, and I've had the conversation with them about did you get off a little bit more lightly because your uh, siblings had paved the way and uh, knocked the tough edges off your parents. But it sounds like you were still pretty disciplined by the time you came along. Uh, to put it lightly, yes. So. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, my parents did a really nice job in supporting our individual interest. And, you know, that's something I've taken as far as now being a, a parent to some stepdaughters, as far as we're all in different fields and we all had different interests. And if, if you look at us, uh, you know, my oldest brother is an engineer. My second brother went to Wall Street. My third brother is a uh, sales manager for a steel company. My fourth brother is an architect. And then then you've got me, right? And cars really are my passion. 
And, you know, my parents supported that from an early age. And, and I think the cool thing is if you can combine a passion with a profession, you, you can really find magic at times. It's still work. It is. Um, but, you know, I go to car races and, and car shows because I love to, not because I have to. Yeah. I, I still get excited walking through our showroom and looking at the new new product. And um, it, it, it it's really cool to be able to do that. And I think if you can do that, it doesn't feel so much like work. I, I think you throw your heart behind it. And, you know, no matter what discipline it's in, I think you, you can be more successful because of that. I wholeheartedly agree. And you've made me think of when I made the shift into the car industry and out of the wedding stationery industry, because going to going to wedding fairs at the weekend, wedding shows <laughs> we, by we yourself. Need two hours just to talk about that whole transition, Andy. I don't know. This could be a reverse reverse interview. I don't know. <laughs> just leave these little trail, these intriguing little little trails for people. But um, were you the first in into cars? What did your dad do? Uh, he came out of West Point as an aerospace engineer, right. and he did his. Uh, he was an army officer, and then uh, he located in um, Indiana with an aerospace company. And um, because of the industry he went into, he was probably one of the reasons he didn't get called back up for Vietnam. Which he did have a lot of classmates that that did go to Vietnam and that's a whole nother piece of American history. But, um, like, you know, we're all very fortunate because he was never called back into that conflict. Mm. So. And was mum at home looking after the basketball team then? Uh, she was, she was, uh, uh, very busy, I would say. Yeah. So. And, and so let's talk about school for a little while. Okay. How was school for you? I know you're pretty bright and you very well qualified. So was school, fairly easy for you or how did that go? Well, I, I can get bored pretty easily. And, and, and if you get bored, bad things can happen. Uh, so, okay, well, let me know if that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, overall, you know, I would say college is, is probably when I really hit my stride. I mean, I would think it was third grade. I was eight years old. We took a school field trip to the local South Bend, Indiana cultural center, history center, and there used to be a car company in South Bend, Indiana, by the name of Studebaker. Wow. And uh, they had a big exhibit on one of the industrial designers that worked with Studebaker by the name of Raymond Lowy. And Raymond Lowy, you know, some have called the father of industrial design. Um, but at one point, he was doing a lot of the cars for Studebaker, and they had done a, uh, he had designed a car for them called the Avanti. And it was came out in 1963. It was their version of the Corvette or the Mustang, and uh, I just I thought it was the coolest car I'd ever seen. And after Studebaker went out of business in 1964, some local dealers bought the tooling and the rights, and they continued to make this car in South Bend. Uh, and it was a hand-built car with a Corvette engine. And uh, I guess it, for the it'd be similar to the to a British Morgan, right? It's a little bit. It was a little bit of a cottage industry, if you will. And the controller for this company happened to live down the street from my parents. And so after going and, and seeing this car and this exhibit, 
Um, I then, you know, would spend hours at the factory watching these cars being built and they were being built in this hundred year old factory by, you know, 60 year old retired Studebaker workers and all built by hand. And that really fueled, I would say that the passion ignited the interest in cars for me. And, uh, I then sought out, you know, a job at a local dealership when I was 16, my first job was washing cars and, and, uh, driving a parts truck, delivering parts. I sold cars once in a while. Uh, but I just knew from that point on, I wanted to be around cars and I did everything I could to be around them. That's very helpful knowing at an early age what it is that gets you fired up and what you want to do. So you knew coming out of uh, college that you wanted to get into the industry. Yeah. So, I, you know, I worked there um, in high school and in college in the summers or on breaks and, uh, you know, tried to absorb a lot. And, uh, you know, I also worked at the at a retail clothing store called The Gap, which, uh, you know, I learned how to fold clothes. But more importantly, I was a little bit shy at the time, and it forced me to get out of my shell and, and go talk to people. And um, I think that helped me throughout my career as well. But, you know, I went on to um, college. Uh, I had found a college by the name of Hillsdale College, and I had played a lot of tennis uh, growing up and had found them through their tennis coach. And um, just really, I would say it was a it was a small independent liberal arts school. I, I knew I wanted to go into business, um, but as part of our freshman core, I ended up taking a philosophy class. It's a liberal arts school. You have to fulfill certain requirements. And I absolutely was intrigued by this philosophy class. And it intrigued me enough that I wound up minoring in philosophy. And it was a just a very different discipline and, and a very different thought process. So, you know, you would come out of, say, an accounting final where your debits had to equal credits and uh, you would go into your philosophy final. I can still remember one of the questions, which was prove that witches do not exist. <laughs> so I'm already thinking, well, this is where you you, you see if they float, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. So it it was it just expanded my mind, uh, provided a different thought process. There was a lot of logic involved with it. Um, and there's so many different schools of thought. And, uh, you know, it led me to um, pursuing a semester of study at Oxford University's Keeble College and studied philosophy over there. And I would say that really opened my eyes to the world a little bit more and uh, probably fueled a, a bit of my interest in what developed into an international career then, which has been fun. So after you know, college, I'm on a work-study program, washing cars for the, for the school, wash their fleet of cars, of course, car-related, right? And uh, there was a big supporter of the college um, that also happened to be a car dealer, and that was uh, Al Sarah. And so I went to work for uh, Al and his son, Joe, uh, up in Michigan. They're one of the largest privately owned dealer groups in the U.S. And so that was my step out into an, an auto industry career. And I started on the retail side and um, learned quite a bit from them. You know, Joe became 
uh, Joe Sarah became one of my first mentors and I learned a tremendous amount from him. I also had a personal goal of, of going back to school and pursuing an MBA. And uh, so after a few years, I went back home to South Bend, Indiana and went to the University of Notre Dame uh, where I pursued my MBA. And uh, interestingly enough, I met my now wife on the first day of orientation at Notre Dame. She was in the MBA program as well. And uh, I can still remember walking across campus with her to get our student ID photos taken. So, you know, what, 25 years later, I end up married to her uh, or 20 years later. So I, I guess I'm a little slow, um, some would say. But, uh, you know, she was dating somebody at the time that she wound up marrying and I was dating somebody at the time. So there was always a little spark of an interest. But, you know, I think a little bit of a lesson is for, for our younger listeners or I guess even older listeners is if you have an interest in somebody, go ahead and ask them out and see what happens. Don't wait 20 years to do it. So, wow, we're, we're knocking them out of the park early in this <laughs> conversation. Kirk. So you met on the first day. Uh, this was at uh, when you went to do your MBA. Yeah, this was correct. Back correct to, to Notre Dame, as you guys say. Uh, and was that spark from the moment you saw her? Was it like love at first sight type thing? I don't know if it was love, but there was certainly an interest. I mean, she was you know cute and bubbly, and and uh, you know we we became friends. We were um, actually in work groups together during during our MBA program. And, uh, you know, we uh, reunited several years later, I think it was back in 2007 and Notre Dame has a pretty well-known football team. And, and I was back for a football game. And what do you do before a football game? Well, you, you go drink and eat at a, out of your car called a tailgate. Right. So uh, I'm at one of the parties and, and uh, ran into her again and, you know, reconnected. And at the time, I was living in Munich, Germany, and then in 2008, went to China. And uh, so we, a little bit like this, being on a Zoom call, but it was Skype and email at the time. And there was obviously an interest there, and she had gotten married, divorced, and I had never gotten married, just moving around. And so, you know, one day I called her and I said, I was living in Beijing at the time, and I said, I'm, I'm sending you a, a ticket. and. Uh, you know, why don't you meet me in Hong Kong? And Very she nice. responded with, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I was, hey, let's. She's like, how's that going to work? I'm like, well, you, you get on the plane at O'Hare in Chicago and I'll be at the Hong Kong airport and I'll see you there. And uh, thankfully she did. So. Uh, she got on the airplane and came over and uh, we spent some time in Hong Kong. I had a, you know, there was obviously something there and uh, kind of started a, a little bit of a whirlwind romance several years later. Marvelous. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go back, Kirk, if we just a little recap. So you had uh, the Studebaker moment. You had that early interest in cars ignited by that got your early jobs involved with cars worked for um uh, the, the dealership sarah dealership group 
and then decided to go back to do your MBA, or you'd always wanted to anyway, carry on your education mm-hmm. and get the MBA. So you went and did that. So what happened after that? Once you'd got your MBA, what, what was the next step from there? Well, really, you know, coming out of the MBA program was trying to figure out what did I want to do next? And, you know, I had some Wall Street interviews. There were people going into investment banking. Um, I would say at that time, investment banking and consulting were pretty attractive options for newly minted MBAs. I'm sure. And so, you know, I did some of the Wall Street interviews and I'd also interviewed with, you know, Ford and GM that recruited on campus. And, um, you know, I think this is a point in time where mentors are important in your life as far as trying to figure out next avenues. And uh, at this time, I was really you know, talking to my dad and, and one of my brothers about next steps. And they're like, you know, you, you really love cars. Like you might be happier sticking with the car theme rather than going to Wall Street. And, um, you know, you, you just seem to have a real interest in there and you need to consider that. And so I sat back and I thought, well, okay. And I thought about what cars are really intriguing to me. I thought about what brands are really, I think, uh, well-respected brands and well-run companies. And I came to BMW where I said, I I think it's a strong brand. The products are exciting. And at that point in time, BMW was really expanding its operations in the United States. So what year was this? This was 1996. So they had just built, um, their production facility in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, in the early nineties. Um, they have the design studio out in, um, design works out in LA. So it was one of the few markets where they were fairly well vertically integrated, um, throughout being design studio, manufacturing, uh, a, a sales company, and they were just starting a finance company at the time. And I thought, well, you know, that's a pretty big commitment to the United States. And I'd probably have uh, a pretty good wide variety avenue to go within the U.S. And um, so I I just sent them a cold. This is, you know, before the days where email was really uh, prevalent. I sent them a cold cover letter. I just said, "I, I love the brand. I think it's a great company. I'd love to come work for you. And, uh, oddly enough, I got a call. It was a gentleman with a little bit of a German accent. And I had told a few of my friends at the time that I'd sent this letter. Oh. And the first thought that runs through my mind is, <laughs> oh, it's Justin. He's pulling a prank on me, you know. And and thankfully, I played along because it really was an executive from BMW calling. Um, <laughs> they asked me out for an interview, and I went out to... Uh, New Jersey, where their North American headquarters uh, was located, and uh, uh, was was hired by Stefan Krause, who also became a mentor. He did quite well for himself as well. Yeah, I would say so. Not bad, right? Not bad. So, um, and that's how I wound up at BMW. It was it was taking a chance with a cold cover letter and going. You know what? I I think they have the best brand and an exciting product and. And uh, that led to a 20-year run with, with the company. Yeah, you say you you took a chance with the cover letter, Kurt, but what I really like is the work you did before then. 
in identifying where you'd like to be the brand yeah. that you wanted to be with and and doing that due diligence if you like around well what are bmw investing in the us you know are they here for the long term and uh, what breadth of opportunity might there be there for you so that's very transferable to other people thinking of what they want to do you didn't wait for someone to contact you you did the the preparation yourself and also you mentioned mentors a couple of times already um fairly early on in your career journey but mentors have come up um and i think that that's also important you continue to have mentors now absolutely and uh there were a few that developed over time with with bmw and i think throughout your life they can change um you know as your circumstances change um and you know actually you know one of the longtime mentors I had was Johan Felk. So, you know, I met Johan my first year at BMW. And, um, you know, Johan was a rather imposing figure at the time as far as a tall gentleman that was bald with a goatee, you know, pretty buff physically. And, uh, and he was German. So, you know, at age 26, man, that was intimidating. Right. Yeah. So I, I and honestly, the first time I sat down with him and spoke, I was so nervous. I think I sweat through my shirt. Like it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was a second. And he and I would laugh about that, you know, years later. Um, but uh, for some reason, you know, he took an interest in me and we got along well. And uh, at a point he looked at me and he, he said, you know, um, I'd be willing to bring you over to Munich to work in my group for three to six months because I think it'd be really great experience for you. Um, but, uh, I can't promise you anything on the backside after that. And so either very naively or very courageously, I accepted that offer and, uh, got a one-way ticket to Munich. And, um, the one thing I looked at was anybody that had risen to, senior leadership in the auto industry had an international assignment along the way. And they are not easy to come by. They're hard to come by. Um, it's a big investment from the company. Uh, but I was smart enough to look at that and say, okay, if I want to make it to a senior leadership position within the automotive industry, um, I'm probably going to need an opportunity like this and I'm going to jump at it. And it was, it was really a leap of faith. I mean, there was nothing promised on the other side. You know, I didn't know the language. I had never taken a German class in, in high school or, or college. And so I, I landed in Munich. I, you know, I, I couldn't even read the street signs. I, you know, it was um, uh, sink or swim very quickly. And so, uh, you know, as far as learning a language, that would be another life skill that if you can learn it earlier in life, probably a lot easier. So I would spend two days a week um, in a grammar class before uh, work started. So say 7 a.m. at the office trying to learn German grammar. And then I would spend the weekends in a vocabulary class trying to build up my vocabulary. And so after a period of time, they, uh, you know, Johan looked at me and said, we're switching to German. You will either get it or you won't. And uh, uh, thankfully, I did get it, um, but 
know, back in 19, this was 97, uh, BMW was very much still a German company. And beyond, I would say even further than that was very much a Bavarian company at the time. And so how long had you been with BMW before you moved from the US over to Munich? Uh, it was just over a year. Right. So not very long at all. You must have impressed, though, in order to get that invitation. So did that just come about through conversations you were having with Johann Felk in, in the US, or were you over visiting in Munich at the time, or how did that happen? No, I would see him on his uh, trips to the US. So I either impressed him or he felt sorry for me from my uh, first interaction with him. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted you to know he wasn't so scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, that, you know, really opened my eyes to uh, uh, a big wide world. And we were dealing with a lot of the different markets. You know, I, I would say that's another probably um, uh, good piece of advice. And it was go where there's growth, because where there's growth, there's opportunity. And at that time, financial services may not have been as sexy as the car side of BMW but it was very much in a growth phase. And I would say that piece of advice worked out very well for me because I got opportunities that I may not have gotten otherwise. And I think served me very well. Um, so I got exposed to the business. I got exposed to headquarters. Um, I was learning German. And at that time, BMW owned a um, little British operation known as Rover. And uh, I was one of the few native English, and I know the Brits would debate whether it really is native English speaking, but I was one of the few native English speakers in Munich at the time. And BMW Group CFO, a gentleman by the name of Gunter Lawrence, was with Johan. And I heard him discussing with Johan that he was heading over to address the Rover executives. And he was a little bit nervous about his English and he, he didn't have a good presentation. And uh, I heard a little bit about what they were talking about. So I spent the weekend putting together a presentation in English. And on Monday, walked into Johan's office and I said, you know, I ever heard the conversation with Mr. Lorenz. And uh, I thought maybe I could assist in some way, shape or form. And I, I put together a few thoughts I, you know, overheard and you know, if you think this would be useful at all to you or him, please feel free to use it. The next thing I know, I am the English speech and presentation writer for Mr. Lorenz, who's the number two gentleman in all of BMW. That's brilliant. And that was because you overheard something. No one asked you to do it. You yep. took the initiative. You did it on your weekend. And then you offered it up if they wanted it. Yep. So that experience, so... You know, I got to the 22nd floor of BMW at what, age 27. That was a that was a big deal, um, and so I used to fly over on the company plane with them to uh, prep them on the speeches and presentations, and that gave me an insight because there were other senior executives traveling with them at the time. And it really gave me an insider's view to how this big machine called BMW worked in the thought process and the decision circles and everything else. And it was an amazing opportunity for a, a, 
you know, a, a young guy like myself at the time. I can imagine that is an incredible opportunity. So the six months, the three to six months that uh, Johan Falk offered you, what? how long did it actually last? Um, it went for two years. Right. So, uh, and that was a real compliment that they asked me to stay and a uh, real compliment that, you know, I had uh, some senior executives that took an interest in me and, and um, you know, I wound up working for Johan a couple of times throughout my career. And uh, he was, he actually came to my wedding. You know, it's from the first meeting of sweating through my shirt with him to, you know, 20 years later, he's president at my wedding, along with Alan Crooks, who, you know, you and I both were, had the pleasure of working with and for. Um, they were really great mentors. Very good. And um, I'm now curious, Kurt, you had such an amazing opportunity to, to get close to the decision-making and understand that. Can you just say a few words on what the secret is to understanding that? Well, I started to learn the business models, and there is there is a, a, a difference between the American business model and the German business model, and, and that helped me learn what that was, which the American business model um, – you get to probably 60 to 70% of a solution. You may not have all the facts, but you make a decision and you just get going. And it works very well in fast-paced and creative industries, right? If you look at the U.S., you know, tech is obviously one of the fortes uh, of the U.S. Um, if you look at the creative industries, whether it's Hollywood, Disney, Things like that also works very well for that. Wall Street at times uh, has been at the forefront of, of the U.S. Um, country and market. And, and that business model works very well for those industries, right? And if you look at the German business model, what I learned was it is very much a planning um, business model. You plan 120% so that all the issues try to you try to work out ahead of time and it works very well for industries that have a long lead time because that planning allows you to work out the issues that you may encounter um, you know a few years down the line when the product's actually going into into production so you know it really works well for the german auto industry you know, you have log lead times in the auto industry. and BMW tends to plan in seven-year cycles. And it, it really works well for those types of industries. So I got an insight into the core competency of the German business model versus the U.S. business model. And I think that, that helped me quite a bit as far as understanding how that works. You know, in the U.S. business model, you would probably present three scenarios. Um, you know, you could think about all the different scenarios, but you'd focus on the three most likely, and then you'd whittle it down to what you thought was the best scenario, and, and you get to a decision. And that meetings are a place where decisions are actually made. And in the German business model, you have to think of every possible conceivable solution, no matter how 
unlikely to be chosen at the end. Um, and it's much more of an intellectual exercise. And I think that's where my philosophy background really helped me. Um, so you have to come up with every conceivable solution. Um, it is very much rooted in, at least at BMW, it's very much rooted in deductive logic, right? So I'm going to develop a series of criteria, and then I'm going to wind up with three to five solutions. And then I'm going to come up with another set of criteria, again, deductive logic, to prove which one of these three to five is the best solution out of that. So from my philosophical background, I really appreciated it from a logic standpoint. Um, the other difference with the German business model is decisions are usually taken before meetings. And it's um, very consensus oriented. And having somebody like a Johan was very helpful in understanding and, and having that insight into the 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 board about you um, have to really go meet with every person that's going to be in that meeting ahead of time and take them through the presentation and why you think that is the best solution. And they may offer some insight that you can then work into the solution. Uh, but if you show up at that meeting without having gone around at a time, it's very much an insult. And no matter how good your solution is, that's going to be a no vote because you did not respect the person and their decision-making authority. So, you know, I, those were some of the learnings out of seeing the inner circle and, and how things worked, uh, which helped me along the way as far as knowing if, if I had an idea or wanted to get something done, how you would go about that and, and how it worked. Thank you, Kurt. So you said uh, quite humbly that uh, they, 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 they graciously kept you on for uh, like two years rather than three months to six months. But I'm guessing it was not out of the goodness of their hearts so much as the fact that you were adding value and delivering and contributing. You'd proven proven that uh, in that period of time. Um, um, were you then, when it came to move on after the two years, was that something you engineered or was that almost taken care of for you? Well, I uh, was privy to some discussions about an issue that was brewing in the U.S. that everybody was getting very nervous about. And that was um, the U.S. had built a very large leasing portfolio at the financial services company. And nobody really knew what to do about remarketing these vehicles and how to deal with a large influx of cars coming back out of the lease portfolio. And it represented a substantial amount of risk to the company. So I think, you know, on a lease at the end of the term, which is in the U.S. generally three years, the captive finance company is the owner of that vehicle. And they have, you know, written a lease with established residual values. And, you know, if you have a one 2% swing in used car values, it can throw that lease into a negative financial position. And uh, I think the, you know, the number of off-lease vehicles was growing from 26,000 a year to, or 23,000 a year to 77,000 in one year. And nobody really knew what to do. 
And it was one of those issues, and that's another learning along the way, is there are some issues that people will just absolutely not touch because it can kill your career if it goes wrong, right? And it's, you know, you see people heading for the exits as far as, I don't want to touch this. Like this, this could wind up really badly for me. Um, and so again, very naively or very courageously, I was aware of the situation and kind of raised my hand and said, listen, um, you know, if, if you'll give me a shot and let me pick some people and, and put a team together and give us some resources, I think we can figure this out. And so they did. And so, you know, here you are at a really young age, you know, I think I was 30 or 31 years old uh, at the time. And, and uh, they're sending the crazy American off to put together a plan to, to handle this and mitigate the risk at the same time. We put together a great team and uh, came up with some pretty creative solutions. And this is where my retail background helped as far as knowing how the retailers would possibly look at this, uh, who we had to get on board. And uh, that's where we came up with the full circle remarketing program. And what we had done was really took a look at, you know, who are the 20 most influential BMW dealers in the United States and come up with a plan as far as if they would agree to buy a majority of the cars that they had originated as leases coming back to them rather than us having to pick them up and take them to auction or resell them to other people, that we would create a set of benefits for them. And so, you know, we, we said, if you would buy a majority of these cars coming back to you, the money that we're spending on picking them up and selling them through an auction, we'll give to you, right? So it was about $500 a car between transportation auction fees, repairing the vehicles and said, you know, if you agree to that, we'll, we'll pay you $500 per car and we'll give you that money. And as a way, so that was kind of the wholesale push and the retail pull was really establishing certified pre-owned BMW. And, and that was the retail pull mechanism for retailers to be able to, to market these vehicles and really setting up certified pre-owned BMW as the entry level BMW. So rather than buying a, a Chevy, Ford, Toyota, Honda, um, wouldn't you really rather have a, a three-year-old BMW with all the amazing driving characteristics? It's the ultimate driving machine. I don't care if it's brand new or three years old. It's still the ultimate driving machine. And much more of a value orientation. Um, it's a lower price point. And we came up with retail programs that were aligned with the new car programs. And uh, it, it became very successful. We dealt with, we had the majority of the BMW dealers sign up on the program. Um, we uh, sold the 77,000 vehicles without really a problem. Um, the residual values were strong. And more importantly, in the new car side, the new vehicle predicted residual values stayed strong as well. And so it really became a winning combination. And it's a program that is still in place today, 20 years later. And I'm on the receiving end of it now as a retailer, right? And it's it's really um, it's really pretty cool to look back on it and go, you know, 21 years later, this this program's still in place. That's that's fantastic. There's a lot in there, Kirk. So that was the beginning of the certified pre-owned 
that was a creation of CPO cars, certified pre-owned cars in the US. To there was a big impetus. Yeah. And was there, and had there already been an issue identified? Were there already losses heading heading that way? Uh, Or was this just a recognition at the time that we've got a growing portfolio of vehicles on lease here? We ought to have a plan for what we're going to do. It was a little bit of both. Um, You know, the, I I think it was the scale of the increase um, that really scared people, I would say. Yeah. And you've said a couple of times about a couple of your decisions that they're either naive or courageous. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also making me think in both occasions, you, you chose the, uh, what is it, the hard right versus the easy wrong. You said some people would see this and be leaving the room or they'd be heading for the exits, whereas you yeah. saw it and thought, no, we can tackle this. Let's put a team together and do it. And I wonder, can you tell, do you remember, are you aware whether at the time you were feeling courageous or whether you were feeling naive or whether it was just the family background you had, the way you'd been brought up that you would take the hard route if it was, uh, if someone had to, you could do it. Have you? Can you answer that? Well, I saw it as an opportunity because I saw that nobody had an answer and I saw that nobody really wanted to touch it. And I thought, you know what, like, Let's just jump in and get it done. And, you know, I think this is where the philosophy background has really helped along the way as far as coming up with, you know, non-traditional solutions or out-of-the-box solutions, just looking at problems a little bit differently in a different way of thinking because the traditional solutions probably weren't going to work. Yeah. So that makes me think you were able to distance yourself from the topic if you like and able to look at it with some perspective as a result of the philosophy studying that you'd Mm -hmm. you'd done um and that allowed you to be courageous that you don't describe yourself as you're, you're sort of too humble to use that but that was that was able to make it not a reduce the risk somehow it wasn't about you it was about solving the the problem yeah i I did not have a doubt in my mind that we, given the right people, the right resources, that we would be able to address the issue. You know, mm-hmm. I never thought about, oh, we're not going to be able to do it. We're, we're going to fail. Um, I just stayed focused on it and kept, kept going. How far know. ahead were you looking, Kirk, in your career? I was really, you know, maybe it was a little bit like Forrest Gump, right? Like I was looking at... <laughs> what was in front of me at the time. And uh, I just kept going, you know? So, you know. Keep on running. Jenny Jenny may have been in the background running, you know, yelling, run for us, run. I'm, I'm not really sure, but. <laughs> I'm just cu- curious because it's always fascinating with these conversations because you're looking back and we're trying to work out, well, did I know that at the time? Was I thinking that at the time? Or have I just put pieced that together afterwards with hindsight and, and realized what I was doing? Um, so forgive me sort of, uh, to probing some of the thoughts behind that. And I've, um, where, where did we get up to then with that? That was really interesting. So that was the CPO. You went back to the U S put yep. a team together, tackled that, uh, 
growing portfolio of uh, off-lease vehicles or vehicles that were coming off-lease, set up the certified pre-owned product, which is still going to this day. How long a period of time have we just covered there with that project? Well, we that was really from you know 1999 to 2005, and in in between there we had the you know tech meltdown. We had 9/11, and uh, we had the E65, the 2002-2003 seven series issues that we we had to deal with. Yeah. So then you went back to Munich, I think, did you? Not willingly, Andy, I will tell you. So <laughs> I, was a, I was, you know, young bachelor living in New York City. I was having, you know, I was having the time of my life. And uh, the uh, CEO of BMW Financial at the time, a gentleman by the name of George Bauer, who is very familiar to you as well. You know, we'd gone through some some difficult times, again, some more challenges um, and, and come out on top. And, you know, BMW uh, on a global basis was experiencing a similar issue as to what the, uh, the U.S. had faced in 1999 and 2000 as far as they had built up leasing portfolios. The vehicles were due to come back and, and the different markets really didn't have a, a plan or a strategy of, of how to address that. And so, you know, George came to me a couple times and, and asked me to go to Munich, and I very politely said no. And uh, on the third time of asking, it wasn't nearly as nice, um, which was a little bit of, I don't know what you don't understand about this, but if you don't move to Munich, I will never, you will never get promoted again while I'm in charge. So it, it was kind of direct. Um, and uh, so I, I packed my bags and went back to Munich again. And I, I, I love Germany. I do. I, I, it, you know, the people are fantastic. But I also knew what I was in for as far as, you know, you're, you're there to produce results. And, you know, whether I'm a little bit slow like Forrest Gump, um, but it, it just takes longer to accomplish things when you're operating in a foreign environment and in a foreign language. It's real, you know, international assignments sound just so freaking sexy. I mean, it, it, it does, you know, you have visions of yourself gambling at the casino in Monaco and hanging out of the French Riviera and, and, and doing things. And the reality of the situation is you're there to produce results. And at least for me, it, took longer. They were really long days um, as far as being able to produce results in a foreign uh, environment and in a foreign language. And so I, I, I knew what would be involved and it, it was a daunting task. It really was. So, you know, I land back in Munich and, and I'm working for Johan Falk again, right? So, you know, we had really two pieces. It was a two-pronged approach. One was I was involved in the uh, BMW number one strategy, which was the big corporate strategy for the future of BMW. And the second was really working with the different markets, developing a team, working with the different markets to help them locally come up with solutions and and solve their lease portfolio remarketing issues. Um, So on the first part, um, you can imagine being 
as an American being in a uh, very, very high level German corporate strategy sessions, um, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, really appreciate it. Uh, but from a human standpoint, going home at night with my head just banging because it's been such a, a long day and I'm trying to, you know, trying to get back into the language and it's, it's, it's a very intellectual discussion and it, they were long days. Um, but uh, we came up with a um, um, strategy that got approved. It took, I think, basically three years to get that, that done. And so the used car and remarketing strategy, I was a head of international remarketing and used cars in the used car strategy that was uh, developed for BMW at the time. I was a part of that. Um, and then the second piece was really working with the different markets as far as, you know, their lease portfolios. I, I, I recognize this, the situation. I mean, a little bit of life and, and your gut instinct is pattern recognition and, you know, trying to take the global principles, uh, but adapt them to the local markets because you can't exactly do a copy and a paste. You have to take, okay, from a high level, what are the principles of what we're trying to accomplish and how do we adapt that to a local market and their unique business environment? Um, so I um, put together a team, you know, convinced a few old colleagues to, to make the trip over and, um, we really set up working with GE's concept of rapid results. And it was something that we had used a little bit in the U.S., uh, but really tried to use in the different markets. As far as setting up a stretch challenge goal, having the teams that work with them develop solutions and putting it into a, a, a tight time frame. So whether it be 30, 60, or 90 days, and so that you have checkpoints along the way as far as achieving certain results. And, you know, the, the most basic one, you know, was, all right, well, it's contract termination date. Well, where, where's the car is, you know, and, and if you have the experience in leasing, it seems pretty elementary, but when you have a large leasing portfolio and systems aren't set up for it, it it's not so much. So we really worked with the local markets and coming up with solutions letting their teams work on them and then having them come to Munich and present the results that they achieved to um, the management committee in, in Munich. And I can remember getting a call from George Bauer one night and he goes, well, I was just with um, the leadership team from Spain and we were then at the uh, conference for the European region. And he goes, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. This <laughs> seems to be working. <laughs> So, um, and that was, you know, I, I think you have a level of people. I, I love people. And that is the best part about working internationally is you meet some just genuinely fantastic people. And that was the real bonus of an international assignment. And you meet some jerks too. You know, here, here's, here's the spoiler alert. Nowhere in the world do they have the exclusivity agreement on jerks. They're everywhere. Okay. Um, but uh, um, I would say as a whole, just some genuinely remarkable people, genuinely nice people, you know, experiences that, you know, 
are, are really dear and you hold for a lifetime. But uh, uh, those are the positives out of the international assignments and in some travel along the way. You know, I think for a, a kid from Indiana, and I always joke about being the Amish kid from Indiana, um, you know, I, I've gotten to see, I think, 46 countries now, and it's just it's just been awesome. That's pretty impressive. And I'm thinking we must be getting close to uh, to 2008 now and uh, when you did the real big one. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, tune in. <laughs> Should we have a commercial break? <laughs> so we don't um, do that yet. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so that was the start of China and... Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if you know the whole background, but I was lined up and set to go to Australia to run Australia. And I was like, that's awesome. Like I'm fluent in the language. Cool. <laughs> Check. <laughs> <laughs> I love the water, like sailing boats, whatever. It's awesome. And, uh, you know, I was all signed up to go and then, I got a call to the corner office one day and uh, it was George again. He goes, you know, we've got this awesome opportunity and we think you're the right person for it. And I'm like, Oh no. Oh no. Really? Can I just leave now? Cause I'm not sure I want to hear this. And uh, he goes, you know, you've proven that you can produce results and, and you can, do it internationally, and you've been able to handle very sensitive political issues very well. And he goes, based on all of that, we're, we've been trying to set up this finance company in mainland China, and uh, we've had a couple people go there before you, and they haven't been able to get off the ground. And we think this is a wonderful opportunity, and that you're you're the person, the right person for this position. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> and again, not something I really wanted to do at the time. And, um, but looking back on it, what, wow, what a wonderful opportunity. So, and it was very odd. Okay. So you have, I'm the American setting up a German company in China, a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, but an opportunity to do a startup in a big company like BMW in a market like China, which was booming at the time. Wow. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And, Go where the growth is. Yeah. Yep. And um, so, you know, I wasn't out on the water every weekend in Beijing and, and things like that, but what a, what a wonderful opportunity. Uh, in hindsight. So, you know, again, very naively or very courageously, I get a one-way ticket to Beijing. And that seems to be a common theme, right? One-way um, tickets. Uh, yeah, I'm getting yeah. the sense there wasn't a lot of choice in these last couple of opportunities no. <laughs> that you were given. Well, there's always the choice to uh, really push back, but uh, yeah. limit your career completely. Well, and it was teased with, hey, it's going to be like a short-term two-year assignment and, you know, it'll be great for you. And, and so, uh, yeah, so I then landed in, uh, very soon landed in Beijing. 
And that was around, that was 2008. Yeah, you were 38 years old. Yeah. So pretty young. And yeah. um, what was in Beijing? What was the setup when you arrived? Well, they um, had a small team uh, set up for the financials to establish the financial services company. They had um, a joint venture with Brilliance, BMW Brilliance Automotive for the local production. And then they had a national sales company set up for the imported vehicles. Um, so it was uh, a very unique setup at the time. You know, when I went to China, I think we were selling 66,000 cars a year. And by the time I left China in 2013, they were selling 325,000 cars a year. Uh, so the growth at times was just exponential. There were years where BMW was opening up a new dealership one per week, and it was just unbelievable growth. Incredible. Um, and if you think from the financial services standpoint, it was an even steeper uh, growth curve because in, back in 2008, or, or when we actually started, I think the penetration rate was about 6%, meaning 6% of the BMWs sold were sold via a, a finance product. And uh, by the time I left, uh, we were at 32% retail penetration rate. So you had uh, an overall market that was growing, the luxury market, which was growing even faster, and a retail uh, finance rate that was growing at an even faster rate. So our, our biggest challenge was really uh, managing growth. But first, we had to get the company off the ground. And that was that was the major challenge for that. People have been trying before you, hadn't they, for quite some time? Yeah. So, you know, there were a few before me and a few years and a lot of frustration. So it was a little bit of, okay, let's send the crazy American there and see what he can do. And Again, a high-risk situation. Like, uh, if that did not work out, I was probably a sacrificial lamb. Like, I, I, I knew the the what was at stake. Um, but at age thirty-eight, you know, at that point in time, I was the I think the youngest active CEO in BMW at the time, and and uh, it was one of the largest markets. So, you know, I did not get any um, cultural training, any language training. Again, it goes back to the one-way ticket. Yeah, it was a little bit like finals week back in uh, university days of, of just trying to uh, amass as much knowledge as I could because it was such a, a foreign environment and a foreign business environment. So, uh, I think on a trip home to collect some things while moving, I went to uh, the local Barnes & Noble, which is a big bookstore in the U.S., and anything that had China in the title of the book, I bought. And I just read as much as I could. And uh, I just started calling people once I was in Beijing. You know, the university I went to for my MBA, Notre Dame, had a I had an alumni club there, and that's one of the great things about Notre Dame. And so there were were a few business leaders there that I got in touch with immediately. And, you know, I think that was one thing where people that had already had the experience knew it could be tough and they were trying to pay it back uh, as far as, you know, people were willing to, to meet with me and, and sit down and talk to me. So, you know, I, I, I sat down with, you know, the head of Caterpillar, which is 
American company, but not really a BMW competitor. Um, you know, Ford, GM, just anybody that was not a direct competitor that would sit down and talk to me, whether it was a German company, American company, or, or, or any other Western company. And, and I was amazed at how open people were to sitting down with me and just talking. And the, the biggest learning that came out of that was in the U.S., if you were going to set up a company, you would probably consult an attorney and go through the laws and they would kind of give you guidance on how to set things up. And in China, um, and it's very evident, even if you just watch car traffic in China, there are laws that govern that, but then there's the way things actually work, right? And uh, uh, those two things are not always the same. Uh, (laughs) And that in China, rather than going to consult an attorney about what your options are and what's legally allowed, you probably need to sit down with the uh, leaders of the various organizations that may have an influence over that. So whether it be the local business district, the China Banking and Regulatory Commission, the People's Bank of China, maybe an attorney here or there, uh, but you really need to sit down with them to try to get an assessment of what's what's going on. And what became very apparent to me was that BMW was trying to set up a 100% uh, BMW-owned finance company. And we had put in two applications for that, which had never been decisioned. And that was another learning out of the local culture is that, well, nobody gave a no answer. Um, no answer is actually an answer and that it probably was not going to happen. And where BMW had continued to hold out hope that because we didn't have a no answer, that somehow this was going to go through and and magically appear. Um, So that became apparent to me pretty quickly. And if you went into the ownership interest of the production joint venture partner in China, that it was a state-owned enterprise, that the Liaoning province government was the major shareholder in Brilliance Automotive. And unless they were fully in favor of that, it probably wasn't going to happen. So and legally, there was nothing that prevented BMW from having what's called a WUFI, a wholly owned foreign entity. Um, but in practice, it was probably never going to happen. And there were some very strong discussions about, well, we could sue China through the World Trade Organization. And, you know, I, I just sat back and said, you know, uh, last time I looked, like, I think China has more tanks and airplanes than BMW does. So I'm not not really sure how that's going to work. And my guess is, is that if they would approve it, you might have like some tax audits and different things that for the sales company that might make things rather uncomfortable or you know, I cars, might be getting off on the best footing. <laughs> yeah, you know, cars may not make it out of port for some reason. You know, something like that might happen. And so I put together a, a presentation. I still remember it was called "Stay Single or Get Married," and it was about which way forward. And it was very early on in my time at in China, uh, but it, it's really stuck out so clearly to me that either we wanted a, a an operation there or we didn't. But the current strategy was not progressing, and we needed to change. So, you know, I had proposed uh, going with the joint venture strategy with our 
production joint venture partner and entering into discussions with them about that. It went all the way to the board in Munich and um, it was a very controversial topic. Um, but to me, it was, it seemed pretty simple. Like nothing's going to happen or you can set up a, a joint venture operation. Those were really the, the two options. Black and um, white again. Very. And um, so they said, okay, let's proceed in that direction. And uh, it wasn't a, a popular decision with some people. Um, but so then I um, sat down with the chairman of Brilliance Automotive and started hammering out a joint venture contract. And, uh, you know, again, I'm a fairly young executive at the time and negotiating this contract. Well, my boss being Alan Crooks, the head of Asia Pacific, and George Bauer, the global CEO, are sitting outside. Right. And I come out of the, the meeting room and I'm like, okay, this is where we're at. You guys want to take over? And they're like, no, no, no. You're doing a good job. <laughs> you have to be kidding me. And so we, Chairman Wu and I hammered out this contract. And uh, Chairman Wu, I'd say really um, bright gentleman, uh, was, you know, did investment banking, like not a very, very quick, very smart. Um, and he was willing to work with me. Um, but uh, we set it up a little bit differently where we set it up with a joint as a joint venture with the production joint venture. So that if anything changed in the future with that production joint venture, it would flow through to the finance joint venture. So it was uh, a majority ownership by BMW AG and then minority interest through the joint venture partner because the joint venture was a 50-50 joint venture. So, you know, if it was a 50-50 joint venture, it really effectively was 25% and 75% uh, BMW then. But uh, given that the ownership structure now of the production joint venture is changing to a majority of BMW interest. We look really smart looking back on it, right? Um, and it, it got me into um, really into areas that I didn't have a strong background in as far as setting up articles of incorporation or an operating agreement and you know, things like, okay, how was the board going to be set up and who was represented on the board and how many board seats did everybody get and what was subject to a unanimous vote and what was subject to a majority vote. And these were the fine details that I really had to sit down with other people that had done joint ventures in China to understand the impact of what those decisions would mean and how they um, came to fruition. So you're able to get some help. But it sounds like the first thing you did, Kurt, when you, once you knew you were going to Beijing, you said you went to Barnes and Noble and you you bought the books, and then you you just reached out to people through the alumni organisation, and you weren't afraid to get help. And then when it no. came to to this piece of the job, which was new to you, once again, you weren't afraid to get help and uh, get some guidance from people who'd done similar things before. Yeah, and there was a, a gentleman by the name of Jack Perkowski that had written a book called uh, Managing the Dragon, and it was about his experience where 
he was a Wall Street guy, assembled a, a big fund and went over there and, and set up shop and failed miserably the first time around. And uh, the second time around really learned a lot of lessons and put those down in the books. And he's been an extremely successful business person. Um, but there was actually a, a book written about him called Mr. China uh, that was written by one of his lieutenants. But when he got it right, he wrote a book called Managing the Dragon. And I actually reached out to Jack, um, who was still living in Beijing at the time, and actually sat down with him. And he was very generous with his time as far as, you know, kind of walking me through different things. So That's something else that's coming out very strongly, your desire to keep learning and to, to try things you haven't done before and to not be daunted by that. So you got it off the ground. You got the negotiations with Chairman Wu worked out and you got the business set up. Mm-hmm. But uh, really bumpy, um, <laughs> really bumpy road along the way. And, um, you know, it was um, it was uh, a, a real challenge. So we um, when we did our grand opening. So when we first went there, we started with the local bank, Shenzhen Development Bank, uh, because we didn't have our own license yet. And we did financing under the title of BMW Financial Services, but they were actually underwriting the paper and running everything in the background. But it gave us some experience um, on uh, the sales marketing side and getting that set up. And then as once we got, uh, I can still remember the grand opening because it was uh, over 10 years ago. And uh, in the in the press release, the presentation, you know, I, I talked about a story from Confucius, and it was a story of three tailors, three tailors all on the same street. And the first tailor is putting up his sign, and the first sign read, "I'm the I'm the best tailor in this city." And the second tailor looked at that sign and said, "I'm the best tailor in the region." And the third tailor was looking at the other two signs and he goes, what am I supposed to put? You know, I'm the best tailor in the world. And the third tailor put his sign up and the third tailor is the one that got all the business. And the third tailor's sign said, I'm the best tailor in this street. <laughs> and, and so I use that to frame our business where I said, you know, I'd love to, be able to tell you we're the best auto finance company in the world, but we're not there yet. I'd love to tell you we're the best auto finance company in Asia. I'd love to tell you we're the best auto finance company in China. Um, But our goal is to be the best finance company in this street. And it's to be the best finance company to every customer that finances with us and to every BMW dealer that we do business with. And that was really the setting, but using kind of that local story and that local analogy, our team really picked that up and ran with it. And that became kind of our rallying cry. And it was, it was pretty cool uh, to see how that progressed. But, uh, you know, we get through the grand opening and, you know, we uh, are in business probably nine months. You know, the board has given us, you know, I think a hundred million euro to get this thing going. And all of a sudden I get called in for tea at the uh, uh, with the regulators, they explained to me that inflation is out of control and that they need to tame it. And unlike the Western countries where 
you would uh, simply raise interest rates to try to cool off the economy a little bit, that they were going to control credit growth. And uh, that every month they were going to call and tell us how much money we could lend. And that would be it. And what a horrible feeling sitting in that meeting where you go, I just proposed a strategy that we got through. We just opened our doors. We've been telling the dealers, wait till we open. It's going to be great. Um, and, you know, really it started pulling back on our relationship with Shenzhen Development Bank. And, and I said, well, let me get this straight. So you're going to tell me every month how much money we can lend and that's it. They go, yep, that's right. And I said, well, what happens if we lend more than that? And they go, we'll cut off your commercial lines so that you don't have any money to lend. And I go, okay, you're pretty serious then. And I said, you know, I'm not sure like the big bosses back in Munich are going to believe this when I tell them that, right? Like this is so foreign to uh, Western business culture. I just, you know, are, can I get something in writing about that? And they're like, uh, no, no, we're not putting anything in writing. And you want to talk about sleepless nights, like, holy crap, what a, I mean, what a, what a gut-wrenching kick in the stomach, like, could have just, it was one of those things where you could have just thrown your hands up in the air and go, I, I, I'm done, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sitting there going, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I ever learned this in business school. Like, I, I don't remember a class where they told us that the government's going to call you in and tell you you can't can't do business um and uh you know sleepless nights a really low point like a real low point and i think that's another learning for people is um you can go through some really painful times in your life like gut-wrenching and you can't give up because if if you're really passionate about it, if you're really still moving forward, some of the, some of the solutions that you can come up with, you're not far from gold, but it's, it's, you know, I think Winston Churchill, I love a saying, which is if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, I had that quote, uh, uh, I think, on the wall, I just, I, you just got to keep going. And out of that came some extremely creative solutions that propelled us to unparalleled success in the market. Uh, but I will tell you, it was sleepless nights. It was stress, probably the most stressful time I'd had in my life up to that point. And it was, uh, it was a make or break. Um, and the solutions that we came up with were really, I would say, unconventional. And uh, uh, they worked really well. But the first was on the, the retail side as far as financing the sales of cars. And, you know, went back to Shenzhen Development Bank. And it's a little bit like breaking up with somebody and then going back to them and going, hey, you know, maybe that wasn't so bad. What do you, what do you think about getting back together? And uh, they said, listen, we've got quotas as well, um, but we've got enough from your old business that's running off that we'd be able to do a little bit. And so said, okay. Um, so we, 
would start with that. Um, but it was very constrained. So we're, we're in the middle of a credit crunch in China. And what we realized was that revolving debt was not included in the quotas. What is a revolver? It's a credit card, right? So how do we, and this is where the philosophy comes into play. How do we finance cars on credit cards? Weird idea, right? And so we sat down with the bank and they said, okay, clever. Um, but how do we manage this through our big AS400 mainframe system? And this was where a little bit of creativity and a little bit of finance knowledge become impactful because rather than, you know, 50,000 euro dollars, the equivalent of going past due after 30 days, how do you get a revolver to act like a um, installment loan and trick the system? And so we figured that out. And so we started BMW and mini credit cards where the only thing you could buy with it was a vehicle. Um, but it got us back in business. And so it started working and we approached other banks as well with the idea. And I think within a year we had probably four or five other banks on board with us. And because of that, at a time of a credit crunch in China, we had unlimited liquidity basically. And that was where when I left our penetration rate was 32%. It was double of our nearest competitor. Um, but we got that out of the gate and came up with a creative solution that gave us uh, an abundance of liquidity in BMW sales. I think that year uh, increased 80% year over year. Um, it was just, it was really cool how it worked out. And, you know, at, at the beginning of every month we would get our quota and then we would decide, you know, and you figure out uh, how are we going to divide up the business? Well, it was, saying, okay, we're going to finance A, B, and C dealer this month with our quota. You know, this bank's going to take dealer D, E, and F. You know, bank two is going to take GHI. Um, and, and every month we would re-swizzle the dealers because your credit approvals are good for 60 days. You don't know when they're going to come in. But we felt like if the dealers knew who their finance source was for that month, at least they could work with them. And it may change the next month, they may not, but at least for that month, they know they're working with one entity. And it, it was messy, I will tell you, but it worked. And it was really cool. You know, we won Best Auto Finance Product in 2011 by Money Week. It was a Money Week Magazine Award. We won Best Auto Finance Company in China um, uh, for 2011, 2012, 2013. You know, the, the kid from Indiana was... Uh, voted finance person of the year by money, money week magazine. And it was really cool. It's um, cool. And then the, the second product we did uh, was a product that was not present anywhere else um, in the world or in the market, which was um, a wholesale co-lending model. And again, born out of necessity, the quotas, you know, we um, needed to come up with a solution to be able to, finance our dealers inventory and uh 
we came up with a solution which was pretty unconventional um, and funding was a primary concern. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can remember going down to uh, uh, Hong Kong and sitting down with Frank Newman. Frank was just an incredible guy, um, was assistant treasurer's treasury secretary under Paul Rubin during the Clinton administration, um, had run uh, Bankers Trust on Wall Street, sold that to Deutsche Bank, and he got bored. And so he and some guys bought uh, an interest in Shenzhen Development Bank. And uh, so I sat down with Frank and I said, I got a crazy idea, but let me lay it out to you. And we're sitting there and laid it out on a, on a napkin. And I said, what if we did this? Rather than you know cutting you guys out and everything else, but what if we went together on a uh, dealer inventory financing in a way that would give an equal distribution of risk and would give you a pretty good feeling about the, the, the credit risk, also the risk of collateral? And we came up with the wholesale code lending model, which was we would take every dealer and split the portfolio 50-50 between us and the bank. And to the point of if the vehicle serial number or identification number ended in an odd number, it'd go into one portfolio. And if it ended in an even number, it'd go into the bank's portfolio. So you could identify whose asset was whose. Theoretically, you know, even an odd, it should be close to a 50-50 portfolio, but pretty easy for asset identification. We'll run everything on our system so that the dealers see one front end system and one interface, they won't know the difference. Behind the scenes, it'll almost be like a mini securitization where we'll split out the portfolios, right? So you will service or we'll have this half, you have that half, okay? And we'll run it on our systems, we'll do the accounting on it. Um, on your side, you're pretty well versed in inventory audits and collateral risk the holding of titles, everything else. Why don't you do that for the dealers that we have, right? And the only thing we ask in exchange for all this is that you give us cheap funding for our half of the portfolio, right? But from a collateral standpoint, you're going to look after all of the inventory. You're going to have control over all the inventory. So from a commercial financing risk, not only are you controlling the, the dealer portion of it, but you're really controlling our portion of it through the dealers as well. And um, we sat down, uh, I think a day later, Frank called me and he goes, I went through it with my team and he goes, it's a really wacky idea, but he goes, we like it. <laughs> and he said, let's, let's get going. And so we put together a, you know, a, um, um, uh, a partner team between the bank and ourselves and hammered this thing out. And, you know, when we went to market, we were able to beat our nearest uh, competitor by 200 basis points. So two full percentage points uh, on, on rate. And that was really cool. And uh, again, that led to some more recognition on that side and, and was just really fantastic. And the team, that we had put together through the time, um, just really unbelievable talent. You know, um, I think one of your other uh, podcast subjects, Leopold Fisser, Leopold came in as our CFO, 
I, I loved working with him. He was just an incredible talent, incredible guy, both personally and professionally. And, and uh, you know, the team we put together was was pretty amazing. And we did some amazing things. It was really, it's really cool to look back on. It's amazing, amazing. Okay. Out of such, first of all, such complexity. So there's the international aspect. You're coming in as a foreign country, trying to do something brand new, succeed where others before you had not been able to, persuade Munich that that was the way to go to go forward, get up and running, be hit nine months later with the regulator telling you, we're going to tell you how much business you're going to do. Not It's not your bosses in Munich telling you how much you've got to do. We're going to tell you what you're allowed to do. And then having to uh, get up from that and, and use creativity. And, and sounds like some relationships as well, some, some ability to forge relationships and win people over to collaborate with you to then turn that adversity into incredible opportunity that resulted in you having significant competitive advantage and, you know, sales of BMWs increasing 80% with the credit card product or being two ba- you know, 200 basis points cheaper on wholesale with the second initiative you did. So just knocking it out of the park in, in a situation of real adversity. Yeah, it was, it, it was really it wasn't fun at the time, but what came out of that was so, it was so fun and it was so creative and it was so successful. And that's the part of the business that I love is, you know, you can move these dials or these things and pretty quickly you see whether it works or whether it doesn't. And that's, that's a really satisfying part of this, this whole business and worked with some incredible people, you know, our, CFO, when I went there, David Blue, our head of sales and marketing, uh, Charles Jin, and um, it just really, and then Leopold coming in and, and uh, Lou Jin taking over sales and marketing, just really incredible. And, and as far as the development of the team as well, you know, we really focused on uh, having a majority uh, of local um, talent and, you know, if you go back to the history of China, like, you know, capitalism in, in business really isn't that old in China. And so you either had to bring in an expat or you would have to promote somebody in an age that in Western business culture, you're not normally comfortable with. And um, we made the decision to run a, a mainly local team. And it was absolutely the right decision because it, it's, it's their company. It's their market. Um, people like me were there because we had a little bit more experience. And um, and our long-term focus was on building a very um, successful and sustainable uh, company. So we, you know, set up a bit of a coaching program, uh, which was, I think we called it the ambassador program. But we would bring in expats that did not have line function authority, but they had maybe been the head of sales and marketing in a different market. And they would work with um, our local team member and really coach them along the way. And it, it worked so unbelievably well that it was adopted by all of the BMW operations in China. 
um, because it gave them an opportunity to, we gave the local uh, managers leadership the ability to, to, to shine and make their own decisions. And they, it wasn't, you know, usurped by somebody coming in as an expat. Like they were, they were there to help. That was, that was, that was it. It was a coaching mentoring opportunity. And I think it was incredibly successful. And I, I can't say enough about, you know, the, the Chinese people and the talent in extremely bright and extremely hardworking. The only thing they lacked was the experience. And that's the only reason people like myself were there. You've talked, Kirk, about, you know, the innovation that you brought in. But I happen to know that the culture that you created there was one of, was also equally standout uh, and recognized. And uh, that comes through. You're obviously passionate about, about that. And you said about the people as yeah. well. And um, that was uh, obviously a conscious decision from you to, to build that company for, to be sustainable, as you said, with local talent and uh, young yeah. people. And, you know, we had some real challenges with um, um, talent as far as, you know, somebody could have walked this across the street at any point and probably gotten a 20% increase in compensation. And so it was really about building a, a team environment, a team culture that, um, you know, we did a lot of team building activities and, and some of them were incredible. I mean, we, for the new three series launch, we rented out the bird's nest in, uh, you know, the Olympic venue. And they said, we'll give you an extra day. Uh, and we set up a mini company Olympics there, you know, and it was, I mean, to be in that venue and, and to have that access and, and this is where another piece where, you know, it really didn't fit with the BMW corporate culture. You know, we get to budget times and they're like, what's this team building thing? And it's like, well, we're going to, you know, do this. And we did this. And they're like, well, you can't do that. And I'm, I'm like, you're missing the point. And another smart decision was asking George Bauer to be on the board of our local China company. Right. So, George um, loved, he loves business and he loves people. And that was one of my smarter moves, I think, was getting him on the board of China. Because when we came up with some of these non-traditional products that we just talked about, I looked at George and I said, if we have to go through the normal decision process, we will never get these off the ground, ever. And it's do or die right now. Like if we don't get this going, we do not have a chance of really saving this company. And I took him through it and, and George, you know, real vote of confidence because these were non-traditional products, but he goes, just get going. I've got your back. And that's another piece as far as having that trust. You know, he was putting his job on the line. He was, um, but he had enough confidence in me. He'd see me in Munich and he had enough confidence in the idea and the team uh, we had built that um, we just kind of got the go ahead and we ran. And that was another successful piece. Incredible, incredible period. But it did, you did five years, Kirk. Yep. Yeah. That two year, it'll just be two year assignment was five. Almost six. Oh, my. <laughs> oh. Um. Yeah, but incredible chapter. But it, you know, at that point, I had been overseas for nine straight years, and 
you know, I'd reconnected with Wendy through that Hong Kong trip. And, uh, I honestly, I just wanted to go home, you know, and as incredible as the experience was, if anybody's ever seen the movie, the wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy has a saying that says there's no place like home. And that's all I wanted to do is just go home. And, uh, you know, I put that forward with BMW and, um, it turned into an absolute disaster, just absolute disaster. Um, you know, they wanted me to go back to Munich again and, and I get it. Listen, I had North American experience. I had European experience. I had Asia experience. It was one of the, probably still to this day, one of the few people in the auto industry to have that type of experience. So I get that, but, uh, I just, you know, I just wanted to go home and, uh, you know, there were a lot of promises made about coming back and taking over a position as the regional manager of the Americas. And that was supposedly in process when I was making my uh, way back home. And it, it got absolutely sideways. Just horrendous is all I can say. And uh, where the person they were trying to replace went into a legal battle with them about it and um, in the end, uh, they put me in a position where I reported to the person that they were trying to replace with me. So you, you can imagine how awesome that was, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was horrible, horrible. Um, and, you know, whether you believe in God, karma, fate, you know, I do have a, a decent amount of faith and and, uh, you know, Wendy and I were trying to figure out how to put things together. So I'm in New Jersey, New York, and she's in the Chicago area. And uh, I'm not having very much fun at the time. I ended up having to have an emergency appendectomy while I was on a business trip. Um, so, you know, I, I called Wendy. She flew to where I was. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I, I think it's time to get off the road. Like, I'm just, I'm just not having fun anymore. And we were trying to figure out how to put our lives together because she had the girls and, you know, where were we going to move, what were we going to do. And uh, I went back to Munich on a business trip and, and just kind of laid things bare to people. Like, I, I really don't care to continue with the current situation. Like, it's just, you know, what do you want to do? And I think a couple of days later, and I still had stitches from my surgery, I got a call from Joe Sarah. So the first group that I worked for, out of college. And I'd always stayed in touch with him. And he goes, Hey, you still seeing the girl in Chicago? I said, yep. He goes, still have your lake house in Michigan. Yep. He goes, what do you think about going in together on a BMW dealership outside of Chicago? And two days later I was back, back home and we signed uh, the paperwork. And, um, then it was uh, a matter of trying to get out of BMW. Right. And, you know, I'm at a very good level. I'm at OFK, Oberfeuerungskreis. I was one of the youngest to, to make it into that level. And at BMW, it's like being a, a made man in the mafia, right? Like nobody's going to touch you. You're going to have a nice life. Um, and, um, and on top of that, I had to get approval from BMW to have ownership in the store and run it and what have you. And, so, I mean, I had 
flow charts laid out with Wendy about who I was going to call when, you know, who I was going to talk to about this beforehand to get approval because I thought some people might try to block it. And uh, so getting out of BMW was not the easiest thing. Uh, but I will tell you, looking back on it, it was the first decision I made in favor of my first professional decision I made in favor of my personal life, if that makes sense. So, you know, getting back to the Midwest, which is uh, where I grew up and staying with a brand that I absolutely love um, and being in the business. But it was it was a major change. And there were a couple of things that had stuck in my head. Um, again, successful business people um, and, and two gentlemen. One was a, a father of one of my friends from high school. Another one was an uncle of a relative. And they both told me, you know, stay with BMW till you're about 45. It's kind of like the German GE. Learn as much as you can. And then once you've learned it, like, go out and do it on your own. And so when I got that call from Joe about going out on my own with him, the, that really stuck with me. And I think it was very good advice. It was a very painful process leaving BMW. I love, love BMW. Uh, but, you know, the way my transition back to the U.S. was handled, it was a disaster. So now at that point in time, you know, and, and again, another real low point. Like, I think this had been handled wrong. And especially if you look at the results at what happened uh, or what we did with China, like just amazing, right? And Leopold was another one. Like what, what the way they handled Leopold after that was awful as well. And, you know, guy went on to run Tesla's financial services and is now at Carvana. Like one of the best guys around both personally and professionally. And the gentleman that, you and I had both worked for in Asia Pacific, Alan Crooks. What a great mentor, um, you know, was involved in a lot of the decisions, had my back on a lot of stuff, you know, and wonderful people person. You know, the biggest thing Alan, I think, taught me was about the people and the culture, that it's all about the people and it's about the culture you establish. And that that is something they don't teach you in business school. They really don't. So, but you know, painful time, you know, my family um, really turned, I would say, against me on this decision, thought I was an absolute idiot. Um, really some not nice things that went on with that, thought I was a, you know, making a mistake by uh, getting married as well to the somebody that had been married before and had kids. And it was a really painful time. Um, you know, it just it's one of those things where you just want the pain to stop at a certain point. And, you know, the one thing I would say, I, I probably understand suicide a lot better. And this is a weirdly weird comment. Um, but I understand people that just want the pain to stop. Because when it's so incredibly painful, you just kind of want it to stop. And I would never do that and go in that direction. But I would say I have a really a lot better understanding of of some situations that people get themselves into. And I don't want that to be misconstrued in any way, shape or form, but there are some really painful times in life, you know, and if you don't have a good support network, like really good friends and different things, um, you know, life's hard. You got to have a, a good support network around you and good people around you. But um, again, 
little bit like China where it got really painful at times. This was a, a painful transition. There were a lot of naysayers as far as, oh, a guy going from corporate to retail, he's going to fail. You know, family is not supportive whatsoever. My you know, extended family. And uh, getting, you know, I had a lot of change. Like I said, it's a reverse midlife crisis. I punched out of corporate, got married, moved to the suburbs of Chicago. So I, you know, was going out on my own with a business partner. Um, I was getting married and relocating. And those are some major life changes. And, uh, you know, the retail environment is a lot different from corporate. Um, And that, there were some real learning experiences um, in that as well. You know, I think if we go back to some of the, the leadership training we had with a gentleman by the name of Ed Epley, it, th- those principles are still applicable, right? It's number one, produce results. Number two, grow people. Number three, make marginal performers uncomfortable and, and make things better, right? Now, on the corporate side, the way you operationalize those or execute those is a little bit different than what you do on the retail side. On the corporate side, we would work with Kaplan and Norton, develop a strategy map. And, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's really the strategy map, right? And, and defining all the, what that would look like and all the things that define that. And then developing a balanced scorecard out of those to say, what are some measurable items that would lead us towards that? And um, that... Uh, um, you tie people's bonuses to it, different things. And, and, and that really works well in the corporate environment. You know, on the retail environment, the, the best way I can describe retail is, you know, it's blue collar investment banking. It's um, long hours. Um, the compensation's good. You have to have a lot of street smarts. It's very different from the corporate environment though. Um, and the way to, um, execute or opera, operationalize that is a little bit different. So still using Ed's framework of producing results, growing people, but we took a little bit of a different tact on it, which was there's a show in the U.S. called The Profit with Marcus Limonis, and a lot of people have seen it. So I try to take something out of popular culture that people have may have been exposed to, and it's really about people, number one, people, two, product, and three, processes, right? So on the people side, it's about um, getting the right people on the bus, getting the wrong people off the bus, and getting people in the right seat. And that piece is extremely important in, in you know, in any business. Number two is on the product. And how do you Amazon proof your business? <laughs> right? Uh, that's... Amazon's got their fingers and everything. And, and we really took a look at, we've got to create something that Amazon can't replicate. And then number three is on processes, which is delivering a consistently good product. And so on the retail side, we really focused on those items. And, um, you know, since I've been at BMW of Cherubel, we've won two president's awards. Um, we've been profitable every year. And uh, in the past year, I was actually nominated by my fellow dealers to be on the the BMW National Dealer Forum, which is a real compliment, especially coming from the corporate side. Um, it's it's a big deal. Um, and uh, in in the meantime, got approached by um, Jaguar Land Rover 
about representing them in this area. It was a little bit of a buy one, get one free. So there was an existing Jaguar dealer and um, they said, if you'll buy them, we'll give you an open land river point. And all you have to do is build us a multi-million dollar facility. So, um, but again, going back to growth, growth is the fun part of business and growth equals opportunity. And what we're trying to do here is keep growing. We've grown BMW and then looked at growing with another couple brands, another location. And uh, that really put a lot of stress on things. You know, I took some people out of BMW to start the new facility and brought some new people into BMW. And not only was the new venture hemorrhaging money, BMW started backsliding. And in the middle of that, my dad passed away. And horrible time. Again, another horrible, you know, experience. And I remember sitting with Wendy on the end of a dock and we got a little lake cottage and I go, I can't do this anymore. Like I got to make some changes. This just isn't working. And um, it may sound a little bit callous, but it may be a little bit obvious at the same time, but I really took a look at our senior leadership team and looked at each person and asked myself, am I willing to bet my life savings on that person? Because that is exactly what I'm doing. And if the answer is no, then I need to replace them uh, because this is benefiting them and their families. And it's not benefiting me and my family. And um, it was a very binary decision process. Yes or no. Right. And I will tell you the team that we have developed. So we started with BMW and made some changes and it turned around or, or, continued on an upward trajectory from there. And then um, JLR did the same thing. And, you know, within 30 days, that location was profitable. And it just, I mean, it was unbelievable to watch the change. Same sales team, different leadership team, and the change that happened dramatically. So again, hitting a low point, but you got to keep going and you got to, come up with a solution and kind of start over and get back up and get, and get moving. So um, now in the middle of all this, we had a little pandemic that hit as well. So, um, and that was a real challenge. And in the past 12 months, we have had the worst months business-wise we've ever had and the best months we've ever had. It's really been an unusual and wacky ride. But once the pandemic hit over here, which was just about exactly 12 months ago, um, we took action pretty quickly and it was about how do we keep the business running? And if pe- how do we make people comfortable coming in? You know, I think we installed 20 hand sanitizing machines at BMW, you know, 15 at JLR, but we were on it very quickly you know, securing masks for people. Um, We sourced a viricide spray that if you're taking a loaner car, like how do you know that, I mean, we really, you think about a year ago, we really did not know much about this virus. It was scary. It really was. And how do we make people as comfortable as possible? And, you know, 
we developed a process to spray each car coming into service. So once customers took their things out, the car got sprayed. So our technicians and everybody handling it would be safe. Service loaners, same thing. They got sprayed down before and after each use so that nobody would be put at risk. Um, valet pickup and drop off. We'd been doing it a little bit for some of our buyers and thank God we had been, but we hired more drivers and said, if you're not comfortable coming in, we'll come to you. We'll pick up your car, bring it back in. That'll be a touchless service. If we hadn't had that at that time, I'm not sure we would have survived or, or thrived thereafter. It really drove some changes. Um, and then on the retail side of, and, and we sprayed the entire facility day and night uh, with the virus side, and we had a medical cleaning company, cleaning crew that would come in and clean the facility every night. Um, we did not shut down at all during this entire 12-month period. We kept it going. And uh, that was a testament to the team. I would say the teams we have now are the best teams we've ever had here and probably the best teams I've had since China. Just really, really great teams, and, and it's fun. But we had to adapt again. We had to change. And, you know, if you weren't comfortable coming in to take a test drive, we'll bring the car to you. If you're not comfortable coming in, we'll bring the paperwork to you. We developed electronic paperwork. Like, we, we had to adapt. And the business, as a result, has, um, I think we've come out of, we're, we're not out of this yet, but we are coming out of this stronger, way stronger than what we went into it in. That's a compliment to everybody. I'm sitting here, Kirk, listening to that and thinking how incredibly well qualified you are to be doing what you're doing now in terms of your knowledge of the industry and your experience with, with BMW to, to sit on that BMW dealer council now or um, the dealer organization with with their with your colleagues, your fellow dealers backing. Um, absolutely wonderful. And your ability to to tackle crises. So whether it's the you know the regulator in China telling you we're going to tell you how much money you've got, or COVID coming along and saying this is um, you know this is all going to have to change. You're used to having to adapt, and your your success has been uh, on. It's it's been great that you've shared how it's been tough. Um, this has not been an easy ride, but every time you've been really low, you've come through it and you've come through it by adapting and innovating and, and sticking at it. As you said, if you find yourself in hell, keep, keep walking, keep going. So yeah, I would say, you know, one of my best qualities is if I get knocked down, I will keep getting back up, you know, and that, that I think is a, a good piece of advice. Yeah. Well, I think I'd uh, be happy with at least some of my life savings being uh, <laughs> being with you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, oh, amazing. So let's just recap, because that's where we are today. You brought us up to to where you're at today. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? How many years have you been owning the dealerships? What's the uh, just... It's been six years now. Yeah. Um, and um, learned a tremendous amount. And, uh, you know, I would say as painful as a process as it was to go through um, with what I did go through, you know, really in a good place now, um, being married and, and trying to help raise some, some kids and, 
you know, there's some real benefits too. I mean, I live 20 minutes away from my, one of my best friends from high school, you know, and, and the opportunity to get together with him on a regular basis and do stupid stuff. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have that before, you know, and, um, uh, to be able to establish roots in the community, you know, is the community here has been extremely uh, welcoming. You know, my wife and I have gotten very involved with the American Heart Association, you know, that, listen, from, from those that have much, much will be asked, right? And, you know, I can remember when I got promoted at BMW, what do you do with an American that you're going to send to China and and you know, you go to, you send them to finishing school. Right. And so I can remember being, you know, I think George and Alan sent me, but it was with Shlomo Ben-Hur. And I just remember him going on about, listen, and, and past history, you know, the, the church was the most powerful, then it was the monarchy. And right now it's CEOs of companies. And so if you're a CEO, you have an enormous amount of power and with that power comes responsibility. And if you're not willing to do things, then who? Who is going to do it if you are not going to do it? And that resonated with me. And, um, you know, we've become active in, in the local community through the American Heart Association, chaired the local heart association for a year, and uh, actually created kind of a cool uh, fundraiser and benefit, which is a motorsports benefit. Um, for the Heart Association. So, you know, Wendy's father was affected by it. He went in for a triple bypass and stroked in the hospital. And if it wasn't for some of the life-saving technology developed in conjunction with the Heart Association, probably wouldn't have lived as long as he did. My dad had some heart issues as well. And so, you know, we created a, a local benefit where I said, you know, how do we combine cars with the American Heart Association? Like cars are my passion. So there's a local racetrack country club, you know, rather than going and playing golf, you race cars. And I said, okay, that'd be a great venue. And they were willing to work with us. And then BMW of North America was willing to work with us in providing cars. And we had customers that are actually, you know, licensed competition racers that were willing to bring their cars. And, um, you know, we had uh, a weekend where a guy showed up at the end of my dock at the lake and a um, friend of mine, and, and he goes, well, this guy's like kind of in the cars and I thought you might hit it off. And he goes, this is Jerry Thompson. And I'm like, Owens Corning Corvette, Joe, Jerry Thompson? And he goes, you're a little young to know that. And I go, well, your old race car just sold for a million dollars. He was the winningest Corvette and racing history. And he was one of the drivers. It's in the Corvette hall of fame. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about the heart association cars and things. And I go, it might be good if we had a guest speaker. And I go, would you be willing to be our guest speaker? He goes, Hey man, if it makes noise and goes fast, I'll be there. (laughs) And so we put this thing together in like 30 days. And we've done it for five years now. In our last event, we had over 200 people there. We raised $94,000 in one evening. Wow. That was pretty cool. We had, you know, you could take cars out on the racetrack behind a pace car. We had a go-kart track where you could go. We had 
hot lap rides with race car drivers in race cars. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that part's been fun too. That sounds it. It sounds a lot of fun and allied to your passion as well, which, yeah. uh, which as you said earlier, really helps. So we've talked, we've covered a lot of ground, Kirk. I'm really grateful for you sharing the time and there's so much, um, learning in there for me. It's been fascinating to hear the stories, but there really is a lot of learning there and we're not all going to make it to the, to the level that you have, but, the lessons I are hope still- people go way beyond it. Andy. That's what I hope. <laughs> so I hope maybe there's a, a gold nugget in there somewhere that will help people. But I think the biggest thing is if you can combine a passion with a profession, I think you are one of the luckiest persons in the world. Agreed. And we've talked about you took ownership of your career right in the early days. You identified that you wanted to work for BMW and approached them. Uh, having done your due diligence. We talked about mentors and how important they've been on this journey. We talked about, if you can, go where there's some growth. And that could be an industry as well as a market. It could mm-hmm. be a, go where there's growth happening because where there's growth, there's opportunity. We've talked about taking initiative, that example where you overheard the conversation uh, about the the visit to Rover and the English language, and you stepped in and created a presentation without being asked, and and that led to you getting that job, which saw you flying around on the BMW executive jet and understanding how the decision making circles worked and getting to know people at very senior level, and then numerous examples of adaptation, where you've uh, toughed it out through the downtimes and adapted come up with innovative solutions and manage to persuade other people to, to go in with your sometimes quite wacky was the word you used, wacky schemes to uh, to solve problems. You've also the, the gem of if, if, if there's a spark, if you're interested in someone, then follow it up. Don't. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't, don't leave wait it. 20 years. Like, so there's so many nuggets there. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's so good to reconnect with you and hear your story. And thank you very much, Kurt. Well, it was an honor to to be asked to do it. And uh, I always enjoy talking with you, Andy. And I hope at some point, you know, whether you and your family are visiting the U.S. or, or we're over in Europe, I would love to reconnect at some point in person. So, Absolutely. Let's do that. You've been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you enjoyed Kirk's career story as much as I did. I already summarised at the end of our conversation some of the key elements that stood out for me, but I'm going to say I love certain things. I love that he chose cars over Wall Street. I love that he leaned into challenging situations repeatedly, even where failure could be career-limiting. And I love that he reached out to get help whenever he was faced with a fresh challenge. He wasn't afraid to do that. I was recently diagnosed as an incurable romantic. So I love that he gets the girl at the end. We do this to celebrate my guests' careers, to listen to their stories and to learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated 
with you. If you have any comments or feedback for us, if you have any questions, if Kirk's insights have helped you in any way, please let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us to grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or you can find the episode on our Instagram and comment there at CareerViewMirror on Instagram. Our listeners in Australia are particularly active and engaging with us. Dee Nichols said it's great to be able to listen to the journey, challenges and successes of so many inspirational leaders. Thanks for getting them to share their story. Thank you, Dee Nichols. Nor C said about the episode with Alan Crooks, a lot to learn from this talk, from seeing potential, continuous learning, to failing, and most of all, having fun in the workplace. Thanks, Nors. And Isabel Y said, so interesting to hear the journey and successes of many great leaders. Thanks, Isabel. Thank you all for sharing your feedback. To be among the first to know about our upcoming guests, follow us on Instagram at CareerViewMirror or on Twitter at CVM podcast. If you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Kirk shared a few examples of when he reached out to his peers to get help when tackling new challenges. If you're keen to develop yourself or your team members further, check out the Aquilae Academy at aquilae.co.uk. That's Aquilae, A-Q-U-I-L-A-E.co.uk. Thanks for listening.